and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, we are, of course, recording at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, and the show is presented by Pop Sequentialism exhibitions and blogs. You can go to popsequentialism.com and uh, look at some of the great comic book art that we have for sale. And uh, you can go through the old podcasts and get a little bit of an education about the market for comic book art. I'm going to start updating that a lot more often now because I think that there's a lot more opportunities to talk about what is good investment now uh, going down the road into the um, the investment uh, payoff potential. So something that we've also talked about a lot in this podcast is my involvement with art galleries. And of course, uh, we are supported by La Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles, which is celebrating its 31st year. And actually in December, we will have the 31st anniversary drawing show. And it will bring together just the illustrators from the history of La Luz de Jesus to do small works, which are going to be affordable, becomes kind of an amazing place that you might, if you thought about investing in art, a good place to start. And while I almost never speak investment when it comes to fine art, I think that if you enjoy comic books, if you enjoy the things that we talk about in this podcast and you like figurative work, that there's going to be some really amazing pieces to choose from at really great prices. And, um, you know, it's if you get a chance to come out and see all this stuff on the walls in December... The shop that La Luz de Jesus is housed in is, of course, the Wacko Soap Plant Superstore and uh, one of the busiest places during the the holiday season uh, because of all the amazing gifts that you can pick up. And you can cover a lot of ground for a lot of people. So if there are people that are difficult to purchase for and people that are kind of more middle of the road, you can kind of get all of your shopping done in, in one fell swoop, which is, of course, really nice in the holiday season. And if you're somebody who actually likes to see stuff on the shelves and doesn't necessarily like to just buy stuff online and you want to support small businesses, I think that by supporting a guy who's been employing um, people of um, very uh, diverse ethnicities and creeds, then um, supporting Billy Shire in this 46th year of his um, business practice is a really cool thing to do. One thing we also uh, want to talk about is uh, Gallery 30 South, which is my new art gallery that I run with my wife in Pasadena. Uh, my wife is, of course, the jeweler Adnohia, A-D-N-O-H-I-A. She actually got a piece selected by a museum in Copenhagen for um, part of inclusion with their collection. And she does custom work, but she also does a secondary line of more affordable pieces. And the show that we have up right now is a exhibition between Betsy Enzensberger, who does these really great melted pop sculptures, meaning that they're actually melted lollipops and melted uh, popsicles, and they're made out of resin, and they're really cool-looking, great little statuary, can help um, brighten up a room if you like really figurative stuff and you like that kind of tribute to whether it's food or dessert, then you get to kind of bring in and support a local artist who's recognized as a fine artist, has been um, covered by Fabrique magazine. Her stuff is very affordable, meaning that the most expensive piece, I believe, in this show might be under $300. And some pieces start at 80 So uh, in an unusual exhibition, there are also some collaborative earrings that uh, my wife has done with Betsy. And those earrings, I believe, start at $12. So uh, these great gummy bear earrings. Also showing is Cesar Alzate Jr., 
who does these really wonderful layered acrylic paintings that become sculptures because they're so thick and they've been through 1,000 passes of paint. So a constant painting and drying and painting and drying process to produce these very design-oriented abstract pieces. And when you look at the works, and almost everything in the show that's up right now is red, there's one piece that's blue, it's uh, interesting to find out that he's actually colorblind and is blind to almost all colors, which of course is also incredibly rare. And so when you see how he uses color, really using it as a way of showing the gradation in texture and style, that it becomes a really interesting thing to look at and uh, maybe something you want to hang in your own home. So you can visit any of those places at their um, perspective uh, names and online.coms. So uh, pop sequentialism instead of podsequentialism.com. Gallery 30 South, which is gallery30south.com. La Luz de Jesus.com, which is L A L U Z D E J E S U S.com, using the Spanish pronunciation for a translation of The Light of Jesus, and it is a bit ironic. And of course, uh, Meltdown Comics, I believe, is Melt Comics. So follow some of the other podcasts on the network. There's some great stuff. One thing I want to uh, talk about before we get into today's show is that uh, Mason, my uh, engineer and producer, has also jumped on the the diet that I had gone on. And I had lost, I think, 31 pounds total and have been uh, maintaining my weight within a couple pounds. I've been experimenting with bringing some weightlifting into it because I was not allowed to while I was on the actual diet when I was doing the trial. And um, I want to, of course, make, um, make evidently clear that I'm not a medical doctor and anybody who decides to go on any kind of weight loss program of any kind should consult with a physician before doing so. Make sure that you are healthy enough to be able to uh, do these types of things. But also you want to make sure you can get out to a doctor and see if there are any things that would be a possible hamper to your ability to lose weight. There are going to be certain genetic factors and things that can be tested for in blood tests and in um, other types of medical testing that may... Um, bring to light the fact that you have another issue that may be making it really difficult for you to have success with any kind of weight loss or even an exercise program. So we want to uh, say that up front, but um, Mason has been customizing the the same regimen that I did and has been having a bit of success with it. So I uh, want to give a big congratulations to him and and going to stay on this and we'll, we'll let you know as, as things develop. So one thing that I want to talk about that I think is uh, interesting. We we did take a a week off in the podcast. I think a lot of other people had taken the Fourth uh, of July weekend, and instead uh, I had a show go up, and so I wanted to take my vacation a little bit later. But um, there's some crazy things going on in the world right now, and I know that a lot of us look to comic books for a form of escapism, but I think that the best fictional literature is that which mirrors the world that we live in and either gives us a hopeful message or delivers an entertaining story that we can all identify with. And so I want to, at the top of this podcast, um, you know, uh, convey my best wishes for a, a peaceful um, resolution to some of the terrible things that are going on in the state of Virginia right now. For those of you who are unaware, there was a, a neo-Nazi uh, rally and march um, that was not wanted in the town. Really, who wants these things? But uh, there was an anti-fascist protest that came in to protest against it. And in the middle of that, the, uh, the neo-Nazis drove a car through a crowd of anti-fascist protesters. And rather than condemn outright the uh, behaviors of this white nationalist movement, 
uh, the President of the United States used it as an opportunity to say that both sides were wrong. And uh, I think that that is just insanity. And I, I think that uh, while you can want people to get along, and certainly I want everybody to get along, that you have to recognize when one side is vehemently wrong uh, in the face of another. And so I think regardless of how one feels about certain politics, I think it's very easy to recognize that the type of racism that is espoused by um, these people on in this particular group of people uh, who were bearing uh, swastika flags at their march and therefore are very pro-Nazi um, are clearly the bad guys. And I don't think there's any other way that you can you can view with this. Uh, certainly, if you follow your Captain America comics, you will know that the Nazis were the villains in World War II and they never got any better. They never became better people. If they're still proclaiming themselves Nazis, uh, that ain't a good thing. So, um, you know, I think it's, it, well, there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on online and people like to pick their single issue as a reason to disagree with another side completely. That sort of parlays into what we're going to talk about today. You know, in the last show, we talked about, um, you know, whether or not supporting or not supporting the idea of a black Batman um, could possibly be... I'm not possibly, but would be automatically assumed to be racist, and I thought that that was kind of a silly, um, a silly idea. And that um, then, of course, shortly thereafter, almost within a day of of that uh, that podcast going up, and actually, I should I should uh, mention that we didn't talk about Batwing. You know, Batwing is ostensibly Black Batman, and he is African. Where there have been generations of billionaires, and so the possibility of a Bruce Wayne type emerging from a society where the difference between wealth and privilege and poverty is so great that the possibility of the billionaire son of an African business mogul being able to be a Batman type is just so much more within the realm of possibility because there are generations and generations of um, of African leaders who have amassed incredible wealth. Um, Of course, it's a very different origin, and if you follow the way that the character has been written, it really addresses those differences really wonderfully. And I think that if Marvel has great success with Black Panther, and it seems like they're going to, then DC would be smart to capitalize on the interest in black superheroes with a predominantly black cast by making a Batwing film, and I think it would be great. I I love the storytelling that's been happening in the comic. And I want to point out, too, that none of the writers, to my knowledge, who have handled Batwing have been black or African-American, and uh, the stories have been lauded by almost everybody who enjoys them, and I I don't think that there's been an, an accusation of it being inauthentic. So I think that that's also something that's easy to cloud the conversation, and I'm somebody who is a huge proponent of people of color getting involved in producing stories and being able to lend to those stories a certain degree of authenticity. But I do think that there are writers who can write outside of their own perceived voice. And to say that someone can't is to underplay the capabilities of a talented writer. And that's something that I don't think that we have addressed this as much on this program, and I, I wanted to get out of the way before we go into this next thing. So I think we're going to take a quick break here before we head into what is going to be the bulk discussion of this show. 
And a uh, little teaser, it involves the casting in Deadpool 2. But uh, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in about 60 with the discussion at hand. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, the last show uh, we, we did was about the arguments online about a, a great kind of uh, meme that hit that used uh, recast most of the major roles in the Batman franchise with black actors. Not African Americans because a lot of them were British, but um, the the actors were selected, and there was some interesting commentary about whether or not uh, that was a good idea or a bad idea. And I had waged the um, the point of view that in order for there to be a real connection between this perceived audience of African American comic book readers that and the the product that was is being sold that it has to ring true that there has to be an authenticity and there has to be a want and a need for it in the marketplace and of course we don't know that the data supports that there's any kind of growing audience among African Americans that are even interested in reading comics and so the idea from a business perspective that it's a, a demographic that is worth catering to has been not received well in the industry because they some people in marketing have just come right out and said you know we've tried diversity and it hasn't worked and I, I think that that's a failure of imagination and one of those failures of course is in engaging in a genuine way by getting involved creators that would be tastemakers within the community and the way that you launch a product, any product, is you use the right tastemaker and you use them as the vessel for whatever it is that you're trying to advertise. And I don't think that anybody at any of the comic companies has really thought about that in trying to get a wider audience for comic readers. And I think that if you do something and you do something well, you get a wider audience. So, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is a great example of that. Relatively unknown characters, even among comic book fans. Um, handled by the right guy, the right director, great script, um, empowered to do a really fabulous job, taking a very different spin because they're very different types of characters, having massive success, and it goes beyond that target audience that they thought they were going to get and got a general audience. And I think that we've seen that with a number of of different films over the year. Moonlight, Oscar-winning film from last year, a film which on paper reads like a small audience film, which is targeted to, if you were to go by classical classical marketing metrics, uh, two audiences, which is the African-American art house audience, which is a very small audience, and the, um, the LGBTQI audience, which um, also does not have a great track record of supporting films that are catering specifically to pocket um, ethnic populations or pocket demographics of uh, diversity. And one one of the things that has been frequently pointed out in, in the gay community is how often you may see a personals ad on, I guess it would be Grindr, and, um, and you see these on, on Tinder as well, that people may call out, you know, no and then a certain... Um, ethnicity, uh, whether it's no blacks or no Asians or, or no Latinos. And there's been an argument about whether or not that's racist or whether or not that is personal preference. And so um, that's a subject for a completely different show. But I think that what, what I, why I mention it is that you don't automatically get an entire community 
when you try and target that entire community with a product that really addresses a specific portion of that community. And instead, you had this film, Moonlight, go from a small art house hit into a bona fide hit and crossing all kinds of audience demographics to become a successful film first and foremost, and then an award-winning, Oscar-winning film. So I think if you do a good job, you get a big audience. And I don't think anybody has really tried to do a good job in thinking about things in a really new and authentic way to get larger demographics of people of color involved in comics. Now, there certainly are a lot of people of color who read and enjoy comics, and and many of them are friends of mine. And there's been a huge, huge um, debate going on about Zazie Beetz being cast as Domino in Deadpool 2. And some of the backlash has been that, well, of course, she doesn't look anything like Domino, that from a body type to a just character design look, that there's really nothing about the pictures that we've seen of Zazie Beetz in the upcoming Deadpool 2 film that reminds us in any way of of the character of Domino. And a lot of people have been saying that the people who have a problem with that are racist, that there's this huge, quick leap to label somebody who disagrees with you as being a racist. And I I think that that is incredibly dangerous. I think that what we've just seen in the last couple of days in Virginia is an example of what racism looks like. And to say that that term also fits somebody who has an opinion that the aesthetic costuming of a character that's existed in the comics for 25 to 30 years doesn't match automatically makes your inability to appreciate the new casting um, as, as somehow making you racist, I think is a huge leap. And I think that it is very possible that there are some people who are, would object to the casting of an African American woman in a role that was not necessarily perceived to be such. And they could have a, a racist agenda but I think that to assume that someone automatically does is a tremendous stretch. And the bigger issue that I see is that most of the people that I know that are, are throwing this accusation out there and saying that, oh, it's racism, that, that people don't like the idea of Zazie Beats in this role, are the same people that had such a huge problem with the casting of Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell. And I think that there is a bit of irony there. But I also want to stress that I understand that there is a vast difference between taking a character that was perceived as being a person of color and casting that role as white. There is a difference between that and taking a character that is perceived as white and casting a person of color in that role. And I, for one, don't have any problem with the casting of a person of color in the role of Domino. I always thought that she was Asian. But uh, when I went back and checked the comics, of course, the name doesn't match up and necessarily ring as as an, an ostensibly and obviously Asian name. But when you look at how the character was drawn on the very first appearance on the cover of of um, of the um, the New Mutants comic, that um, you know before the X Force comic was launched. It's the same first appearance as Deadpool, so it is a very iconic character, and it's very recognizable because it's on the cover. 
and um, the look and the bob and the haircut and then the katanas would make one assume that this character is of a Japanese origin. And the the look and the name, I think, are, are, are more more tentative. I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily a connection between the name Domino and, and anything else aside from, you know, within the character's look. But um, I, I do strongly feel that it would be fine if the right person who looked like this character had been cast, I think that there would be a lot of goodwill. And um, one of the things that I put out there this week was a couple of images of Rihanna with the Domino makeup on. You know, Rihanna rocks that that bob like nobody else and has a very similar body type um, and I think could pull it off wonderfully. And now there's also a part of me that thinks that we're kind of getting punked by the um, the publicity department at Fox, that it's very possible that the two shots that we've seen of Zazie Beetz uh, as Domino in, in Deadpool are just shots that are part of either a fantasy sequence or just some kind of tribute to a kind of 70s thing and that she may not look like that throughout the rest of the film. But that does not change, of course, the fact that she does have a very different body type. She has a, very, a much more athletic body type that I think would be more realistic for an action heroine but that if you're going for authenticity to the look of the comic, that someone who's a martial artist isn't really necessarily that wide. There's a smaller frame, the smaller frame for martial artists, of course, um, making someone faster in their ability to react in close quarters, which is why most of the, the professional martial artists in the world, and especially people who are yielding katanas, um, are small, uh, generally Asian. But um, that's that's neither here nor there. My point being that I don't, think that out of hand there's anything wrong with casting necessarily anybody in the character of of Domino but if you're going to do so I think that it should be someone that fits the character now it's very possible that Zazie Beetz knocked it out of the park at the audition Um, I'm not familiar enough with her, her body of work I only know her from the TV show Atlanta and she's good on it but there's nothing about that performance in Atlanta that made me think, wow, she'd make a great domino. So if she did knock it out of the park in the audition, it's very different from her work on that show. And if they wanted, if she did so well that they wanted to have her in, I'm just wondering why they squandered the goodwill they would have in bringing in a beloved character and having that character be what people who like that character um, expect by casting her as that character when there are already so many people of color in the Deadpool mythos that they could have cast her as. And certainly in the last film, um, you know, Negasonic Teenage Warhead didn't look anything like any version of the character that we've seen in in the comics. But that character was a really kind of a throwaway character, had very few appearances. I don't I don't know that that character was has been on but two or three Marvel comic book covers. And I think that the changes worked and it was more authentic to the character being a teen. And I think that played off really well. They changed the powers as well as far as I, as far as I can, can see. And so it is possible that the writing in a film can improve you know, characters that were not written well in the comics, which again is strange to me that they would choose such an iconic character design and then completely throw that out the window. And one of the arguments that I've seen a lot online is, have been by people who just really don't know what they're talking about. You know, And one of the things that people point to is they say that, oh, well, 
people didn't didn't know what to think about Samuel Jackson as as Nick Fury. It's like, well, yeah, they did if they read the comics because in the Ultimates, in Mark Millar's Ultimates, Brian Hitch drew the new Nick Fury for Ultimates like Sam Jackson six years before Samuel Jackson was cast as Nick Fury. You know, one of the other things that I've seen come up online is the discussion of, oh, people were, were going crazy about, you know, the X-Men and their leather outfits instead of in the classic outfits. Again, the um, the X-Men outfits were started in the Grant Morrison run on um, new X-Men, and that was carried over. And so um, I think that it's, it's important to kind of, if you're going to speak with any kind of authority, that you should know what you're talking about. And I think that one thing that happens quite frequently in comics and perhaps more so than any other area of um, fantasy fiction uh, appreciation is that comics are a visual medium. And so you can say if you were to divide what percentage of a comic book is visual versus what percentage is text, you could say that 100% of the comic is visual while maybe one-fifth, one one. Five percent, or you know, um, maybe you know, half of ten percent. We'll we'll say five percent is generally text, and so since it's a visual medium, and since you're using visuals to sell the characters, character design is very important, and any little changes is a major change. I know that as a guy who's not very tall, um, when I was reading the X-Men comics as a kid that I was really empowered by the fact that Wolverine was small, that he was small and ferocious and he was a total badass. And the, and when they cast a relatively tall guy as Wolverine, I was really bummed out. But, um, and as great as Hugh Jackman has been as Wolverine, there is a lack of authenticity to the comic in the fact that this very tall guy is playing Wolverine. A Wolverine is not a big animal. A Wolverine is small. And so, even from a code name point of view, you know, by having a tall actor in that role, it's it's a bit ridiculous. But if they had cast him and not used the sideburns, they would have been hell to pay. People would have lost their minds. And so we're talking, you know, in the case of of Zazie Beats, um, you know, some people point to her having, you know, kind of a, a really fabulous '70s fro in, in in the pictures. That that's not at all what the what the character Domino had. And I can see people having a problem with that. And while, you know, clearly the Afro has, has become a, a symbol of 1970s um, black power and, and empowerment, I should say, that um, there are other people that also have that same hairstyle that are not black. And so I think the assumption that there's pushback because it's a, a quote-unquote um, blacker, unquote, look... I think that that's a bit insulting and not only just to the idea that a haircut can symbolize an entire race of people, but that somehow that is a separate um, thing that is that is a, a symbolic of only one race of people. And so I, I find a bit of problem with that. And I also want to stress that before I decided to address this on the show, and one of the reasons why I took a break last week was that I was hoping to get some of the people who had been such um, so forceful about their insistence that any backlash against the casting of Zazie Beats specifically was an indication of racism on the part of anybody who was opposed to it. I I invited several people to come on the show and you know make their case for that. 
And I think you know that I've, I've had people on the show before that I disagree with, and I'm very respectful of people's opinions. I'm not an attack journalist. I, I don't use this platform as a reason to kind of bulldoze uh, my opinion over somebody else, and especially not in a real-time space. And so I would hope that if they're familiar with what I do, that they would know that I would be very respectful to their, um, their point of view. But none of them would take me up on it. And I think that there's a big difference between saying that somebody is a racist when you're typing it online on Facebook is a lot different than sitting in a room with somebody and saying it to their face and more especially saying it in your own voice, which then is out in the public space and you don't have the control of whether or not you want to erase it. And I think that people should think of that that lasting power of of a statement and they should carry that over and think a little bit more before they type in absolutes even on their own social media and a lot of these people are are, do not have it locked to just comments that uh, friends can see but have a you know universality it's it's open you know the world can access um what they're typing and it's dangerous to to just jump to conclusions and make these these blanket assumptions and especially without any kind of of evidence to back it up, except to say that, oh, well, we know human nature, or, or, or to say something very anecdotal. And certainly, you know, I think it's great if if we could have brought, um, you know, Zazie Beetz and that look into the Deadpool film and have her be a character that, you know, is, is more aligned with her look and have that be wonderful and empower, empowering for, for people who can identify with that look. And I think the danger in in crossing, you know, this idea that if you if I disagree with you, that my my disagreement is rooted in only this one thing that you perceive as as a possibility for disagreement, and then to, you know, not pay any attention to the the spirit of the argument is is dangerous to fandom. And I think the more that we get wrapped up in this kind of infighting the the greater damage that we do and i i stand by my empowerment of people of color to produce characters that are produced with authenticity because i just don't see the benefit to giving a diversity makeover to a character that was created whether it's 25, 40, 50, or 75 years ago by a bunch of old white guys who grew up in a very different era and probably had very different opinions about what those characters signified. And a lot of times the introduction of, of those characters that were people of color in the Marvel Universe back in the 70s or um, across the spectrum of comics were not done with any kind of authenticity or even uh, necessarily to, um, to present positive role models to other people of color, but it was a cash grab. It was purely a cash grab. And I think that when we do those types of things today, it's still a cash grab, you know. And I think that from a marketing perspective, it's very unusual if you've identified a character as having marketing worth to then completely alienate the group that you're going after by not presenting it correctly. And I think that Fox has a really bad track record with that. Um you know, sometimes they get it right, and a lot of times they get it wrong. And when they've gotten it right, it's been fabulous, and it's been rare. And certainly what we're seeing with the the Marvel relationship with Sony is that I think Sony has sort of stepped back and said, you guys know what you're doing. Um, this is a chance for us to partner with 
not just this Marvel license that we purchased, but now the Disney um, reach and understanding of diversity, which has been getting progressively better over the years. Certainly, you know, when we used to look at the Disney princesses, they all looked European and white, and that's been changing over the years. And there's been um, you know, one of the biggest hits the last couple of years is Mona. And we're going to continue to see that. And I think that they, Disney's a company that does that well. And certainly they do it because it's worth money to them. But you can do something with self-interest that goes beyond that interest and provides a, a greater good. And I think that the positive role models that have emerged from, um, from Disney films for people of all colors is, is a good thing. And I think Marvel does it well, too. And I think they did it particularly well in the last couple of films. And it seems like they're going to continue to do so. But um, haircuts matter, man. You know, like how many... I know so many girls who are crying because they, they cut Thor's hair. You know, and um, and it's... You can make the arguments because he looked great with long hair. And, and now the hair the haircut's different. And that's a little bit different than introducing a character who looks great with her own haircut. But that haircut doesn't look like the haircut of the character. But I think that... Um, you know that they really missed the golden opportunity to to do a casting for a lesser known character that then people would get excited about and not only would that make that character's appearances in the comics more valuable but then it gives you a sort of cottage industry of being able to go and dig deep into a deep bench and you know the character bling it was a completely token character but the um if it was written well in a film and you know you had a really fierce actress like Zazie playing um, that character, it would be very different. And I don't recommend Bling, but I think that Cecilia Reyes would have been great. And Cecilia Reyes is a character that connects several different ways into the Deadpool universe, and then also into you know Gambit and other important characters that we have been told are going to be in uh, this this new film. And um, I I'm just bummed that they instead of kind of playing to the strengths of using an existing character that is a person of color that can be a really valuable character moving forward that they've kind of handicapped themselves immediately in a controversial pick. And maybe it was that they they felt like they had to cause controversy in order, in order to get people excited about the movie. And I understand why marketing departments do that. But if that's the case, that means the movie is not testing well or the script is not being well received or there's, pro, there's other problems in production and they don't feel like they have a good enough movie because you certainly didn't see that type of, of um, controversy baiting in any of the other um, prior films from the, from the Mutant franchise. So there you have it, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing some feedback on this, and I definitely want to hear from you if you think if you disagree with what I've had to say, and you know, I again I just want to stress that you know if you listen to this podcast at all, you know how much I like diversity in films, and I really love what they did with Spider-Man: Homecoming and the casting of the kids that looked the right age, and you know the 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 mix of, of races that you get in, in Queens and New York City, it, it seemed authentic. And I just, you know, I want to make sure that these things ring true because I think when they don't, it can be a big step backward. And, I mean, in one way, you know, if, if this film fails, who's going to get blamed? You know, they're not going to blame Ryan Reynolds, you know? So it's like the, if, if, if you make a big deal about something and you, you, you kind of, if you if you stick that tent pole in the ground and, you, and you're, you're going to build your, your, um, your campaign off of that, 
then you had better be right. I mean, it had better work. And I just don't see anything in the costume that I've seen that looks like Domino's costume. Like you, like I say, there's just nothing about this this casting that makes me think of Domino. And I'm not saying that she's not going to be good in the film. She could be fabulous in the film. But she would have been fabulous as Cecilia Reyes. She would have been fabulous as any other number of characters that already exist in that portion of the the Marvel Universe that uh, the Deadpool films address. And I think that if you're going to play off of the bankability of a character, then play off that bankability. And in a visual medium, you're talking about 80% of its costume. So, um, a shame that we'll never see Rihanna as, as, um, as Domino. And, uh, by all means, contact us. Go to our Facebook page, Pod Sequentialism. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. Uh, send me an email, info at popsequentialism.com. If you're interested in, in learning more about comic book art as an investment, by all means, reach out. Go to the popsequentialism.com website. Uh, go back and dig through the old uh, podcasts and also through uh, the old blog and, and look at some of the, the articles that I've written about the financial stability of the illustration market and how it generally turns out to be a good investment. And I think that, you know, a bigger thing and what I, I hope everybody takes away from this is I think there's more value to writing original characters than in trying to change existing characters. And I don't know a lot of people that want that. Like, I don't know that there are a lot of people that were like, oh, I want this character to be this, this other thing. I think that if you like that character, you like that character because you're familiar with the backstory, you're familiar with the years of stories. And certain changes are going to happen over the, over the life of a character for sure. But I think changes that change the identity of a character can be fine. You know, that, that if, um, if you have a different person will say in a fictional sense a different um, private identity of a character if, if a character dies or is unable to fulfill the role of the the hero and a different person in that universe comes in to fulfill that vacancy there's no there's not necessarily a problem with that person putting on that mantle or putting on that cape and becoming that character I don't have any problem with that I think that if you keep all of that prior character's backstory and the only change that you make is that character's skin color that you have not written an authentic character. And I, I encourage people to do what we've seen happening in Hollywood, and that is to develop authentic stories that speak to the experiences that you have as a person of color and capitalizes on the universal experiences that everybody shares so that... It's nobody's job to educate anybody else. But if you want a wider audience and you want a, a greater success, then the story you tell has to have a bit of universality. And the best way to get that universal audience is by using universal themes and throwing in a little bit of education. And if those things come off without being ham-fisted or heavy-handed or preachy, then you're going to have a massively successful project and this success will feed into other people getting to make their stories as well because you will have established a, a, a moneyed demographic that supports projects of diversity. And I think that the easy facelift 
and the easy diversity makeover are not the way to do that, I think. And, and number one, why do you want to make so much money for other people? You know, like if you've got your own characters, you should get that money. You should make that paper. And it's just, I think, ridiculous to me that um, to expect someone to want to do that, you know, I, I just don't know how, to, how else to express it. You know, that why should I... I want to make money for somebody else if I've got an idea that's so good that it stands on its own. And, you know, I, I would hope that you're out there supporting the people who are doing that. And I'll be honest that, and we know this from the guests we've had on the show, that most guests who have worked for Marvel and have made their own, their own comics as well, if the circulation on that Marvel comic is 120,000 versus the circulation on their own comic being like, 12,000, they make way more money on the 12,000 circulation privately owned property than they make from the Marvel comic. And it shouldn't be the case necessarily, but it is. And so you're better off supporting their personal endeavors. And I think the reason that people used to go to work for Marvel Comics or DC or name that major company is that because it guaranteed them access to a larger audience. But those those large circulation numbers aren't there anymore. There aren't millions selling comics anymore. And so the exposure is sort of a lie. Um, they may have more presence at the local comic store, depending upon where you're at. But, you know, the you would hope the idea is that, especially, you know, local comic creators getting their, their books faced out in their own neighborhood. And if they do well... And the feedback is good, and they can get reviews in the publications, and people are reading those reviews online, and, and they're digging what's happening, that they're going to support it with a purchase. But the, the comic industry is going through a very big change, not unlike what the music industry went through about 15, 20 years ago. And they have to figure out if print publication is the future of that model. You know, do you reach more people and do you make more money if you don't have to print a comic book, if you don't have to print it on paper? Is digital going to become a viable platform? How do we prevent um, the piracy aspect of it, the same as we went through before? I mean, comics were a little bit more protected in the past because it was a lot harder for someone to go into a, to a place and Xerox an entire comic book than it was to rip a CD or, or um, make a tape. And... You know, because it's a visual medium, there's that, that added aspect to it. So I think that what they're going to have to come to grips with is how do you make it special? How do you make a digital subscription special? Or how do you make a, um, an interim model uh, more exciting so that people who want to have a hard copy can have a hard copy, but that the general public can get access to the storytelling in a less traditional and less expensive way? Because clearly, if you're not publishing a lot of comic books, your overhead has just gone down to basically just paying the creators. And so if you can put more money into the pockets of the creative people because you're saving money on manufacturing, I mean, there's a way to split the difference. It doesn't all have to go to the corporation. And I think if if we're able to empower creators, that will draw more talented people. And I, I honestly think there are a lot of people who could be writing incredible comics that won't because they know it doesn't pay well, that they can't pay their rent drawing comics, that they can't pay their rent writing comics. And those people are being you know, swallowed up wholesale by animation and by the gaming industry and even by um, you know, just working in, in marketing companies you know, for advertisers, that those illustration chops are being... 
that they've found other industry industries that pay a lot better than just doing sequential art and, and doing sequential art the, the traditional way, which is via a, a comic book publication. So we're losing a lot of the, the best and the brightest to other industries because this industry, this comic book industry, just does not have a business model in place that can preserve talent. So, um, you know, that, that's a whole other story and, and something that I'd love to have a roundtable on. I would love to get some of the, um, some of the industry greats in here and talk about what they, what they face and challenges in those, in those positions. But um, in the meantime, if you are a person who feels that uh, diversity is important in your comics, then support diversity, but support it when it's done well. Don't let them push you towards a purchase because they're selling it to you as a diversity purchase. If the comic isn't any good, don't buy it. That, because that sends the message. If you're supporting a badly done product, you're saying, I really don't care about quality. I'm easy to market to. And so be choosy. Be choosy with your, your financial support of projects that, that would want to or pretend to feed to your particular um, hot topic issue. No, hold them to the flame by holding them to the financial fire. Make them produce good work that is worthy of your spend, and, um, and they'll have to change. They'll have to make better product. I think that most of the products that succeed in that capacity are independent. And I think that when you're giving money to the independents, you're giving, with that same spend, a lot more money to the actual creative team. And I think that that's a better thing. So, again, send me your, send me your emails. Um, shout me out on social media. And uh, if you disagree with me, by all means, you know, I'm happy to engage and happy to address those disagreements. And uh, if you agree, let me know that too, because it's sometimes good to know that people uh, are listening and that they like what I have to say. Um, not that I need my ego stroked, but that, um, you know, I don't want to get too far afoot. You know, I want to make sure that I know what my audience is into and um, I want to be able to bring you the types of stuff that you want to continue to listen to and that you share with your friends and grow this audience. And uh, remember too that advertisers, you too can reach this this well-to-do and important demographic. And with those words, I will leave you. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.